Hi, thanks for joining us. You're listening to Tell It From Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, with the goal of engaging the city and impacting the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's message is from our senior pastor, Dr. Abraham Joseph. If you want to know more about Calvary Baptist Church and its ministries, head over to www.cbcnyc.org. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this morning, for this privilege of worship. Um, God, this is not something we earned or, or something that we are worthy of, but it's a great gift and privilege from you that we have received from you through faith in Jesus Christ, that we are now forgiven, clothed with his righteousness. We are your children and your servants and uh, your witnesses, your ambassadors. God, that's who we are because of Jesus and because of your great grace. So this morning, we come and look to your word to see how we can indeed be all of that as you direct us uh, according to your word and by your spirit. Teach us, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue on in the Gospel of Mark. I earlier on dropped this. Oh, there you go. It still works. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about riches, camels, the four-legged ones, not the smoking ones. I don't think they're, I don't know if they're still around. And the kingdom of God, what do they have to do with each other? Let's find out in just a minute. But before that, we have a question for all of you. Uh, what is one thing, of course, other than your relationship with God and Christ, without which your life would be meaningless? Uh, that one thing, if it were taken away from you, uh, you'll be devastated. You may even think of your life as lost, uh, uh, lost all its meaning. What is that one thing? Kids. Family. Family. Health, spouse, college. <laughs> Hope. Your best friend. Food, sports. Your pets. Wow, there are lots of things that have a lot of meaning for all, for all of you. That uh, if it was taken, that your life would be reduced to meaninglessness. Uh, I didn't expect to hear many answers because I thought people wanted to remain quiet about these things. Because <laughs> you know what's coming from that passage. Uh, so that's why I took the liberty to ask a couple of more questions that are kind of awkward questions in polite company. But this is one of those passages where uh, we can easily think, oh good, that passage, that's not for me because I don't belong to that category. I wish so-and-so was here to listen to this sermon because they surely should hear it. So just to make sure that we are all people who need to listen to this sermon, I've got a couple of more questions. Um, would you consider yourself to be rich? Good, good. No IRS agents here, so you're okay. Uh, uh, so I didn't expect, you know, I, I, sometimes I'm of little faith, so I didn't expect anyone to answer this question either. So I had an additional question that uh, may, so how many of you would say that uh, you may not think yourself of rich, but you at least think of yourself as richer than somebody else you know? <laughs> uh, for this, I expected all hands to go up. Uh, yeah. yeah um, so this morning, uh, we consider what, it, uh, what wealth 
has to do with discipleship or what wealth looks for those who, who are disciples of Jesus Christ. So we are in that second section of the gospel of, the third section of the gospel of Mark, where Jesus is making his way from Galilee to Jerusalem. Jerusalem where he will suffer, where he will die, where he will rise again. Uh, but on the way to Jerusalem, he's also preparing his disciples to continue that mission uh, of the kingdom of God that he was about to inaugurate, to proclaim that kingdom um, to all places that he would send them. So he instructs them on the way uh, concerning the way of being his disciple. The early church was called the way because these were people who followed Jesus on the way, who himself is the way and the truth and the life. So uh, this section, uh, Mark has organized as a story that is bookended, that's a section that's bookended by the healing of two blind men. And he does it purposely this way because uh, uh, as much as these blind men received sight, one in two stages, one immediately, and followed him, uh, uh, we are also presented with these disciples who, after having been with Jesus all this time, seem, still seem to be blind to his identity in his mission. And the question that Mark raises for us through this section is, like these blind men, will the disciples gain the vision for who and see Christ for who he is and, and understand his mission. Well, if, if you're honest, the disciples haven't been doing very well till now. They're still like blind men feeling their way around. Every time, and we've seen Jesus uh, predict twice already about uh, his mission. Uh, after being confessed as the Christ, the, the king uh, of God, uh, who will inaugurate the kingdom of God, he has announced that he accomplishes that mission of being the Christ not by conquering enemies, but dying at the hands of his enemies. And, and that's just unacceptable to the disciples because their expectations of what God's kingdom would look like was very similar to what they expected for the kingdoms of the world. But God's kingdom is unlike any kingdom of this world, and therefore the king accomplishes his mission by means that are completely contradictory to the ways of the world. And the disciples respond with misunderstanding uh, both times that we have seen his prediction. Uh, First time Peter rebuked him, and second time while Jesus was on the way to the to the cross, they were discussing on the way how uh, which one of them was greatest in the kingdom. Jesus rebukes them, but Jesus also corrects them, and Jesus also instructs them on the way of discipleship. After the second prediction and their misunderstanding, Jesus instructs them on being his disciple includes uh, their holiness. They're being set apart for the world, but not being set apart for the world to be removed from the world, but to be placed in the world uh, as his witnesses, those who bring salt to all their relationships, the salt of the kingdom. And that includes marriages, where marriages are according to God's intent of, for, uh, for marriages to point to him and his relationship with his people. Marriages that uh, consist of faithfulness to, to each other, uh, of uh, permanence, and, and of love for the other. And last Sunday, we saw that being a disciple means coming to God uh, with no claims as children would come and receive their gifts uh, in complete dependence, in, in, uh, in humility, receiving with, with gratitude what God, uh, what, whoever gives the gifts, and therefore to come to God as children. And this morning, we look at what, that, what we would usually think of as a very private area of our life, our possessions. Uh, None of your business, we would, say anyone to say, we would say to anyone who would ask us about these things. But possessions and wealth also uh, come under 
what Jesus calls being his disciples. And what does it mean to be his disciples when it concerns wealth and possessions? So we turn to a passage that many of us may be familiar with. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. Please turn with me there. And we look at it in three questions. Two of them are explicitly asked in the passage itself. And the third one uh, is a question that arises from that passage. So we need to remember here, this is not some independent saying about wealth. Jesus is continuing his instruction on discipleship. Uh, this is not a question uh, from a Pharisee to trap Jesus, but it's a question from a sincere seeker as to what it means to be rightly related to God, and therefore what it means to be a disciple. Uh, this is a, a passage where discipleship is seen as eternal life. Discipleship is seen as entry into the kingdom of God. Discipleship is seen as salvation itself. So discipleship is not something for a special category of Christians, but for all those who would come into a right relationship with God. They're not only called to trust in Jesus, but as those who trust in Jesus to follow him on the way, on the way that he called. So turn to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and following. We read in verses 17 to 20. And as, uh, 17 to 19, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Our English translation obscures the fact that as he was setting out what is translated as on his journey is actually as he was setting out on his way. Way to what? Way to be handed over to his enemies. Way to suffer at their hands. On his way to be crucified. On his way to die. On his way to be buried. On his way to rise again. Uh, while he was on that way, uh, a man, uh, Mark doesn't describe him any further till later on, uh, where at the right time he tells us more about who this man is. And we all call him the rich young ruler. Where uh, uh, Mark does not say anything about him being young. Matthew does. And doesn't say anything about him being a ruler. Luke does. But here in Mark's gospel, at least to begin with, he is just a man. And this man is presented very positively, although we have a very negative opinion of him from our prior knowledge of this man from the other gospels. Uh, a man ran up to him and knelt before him. There's a sense of urgency to this man's action. Uh, this is something that he needs to know right away. And he's a man who humbles himself before this Galilean preacher, an itinerant preacher, uh, who... If, uh, as we see uh, later, this man has, has some means, and if he would wanted to, he could have had, a, had one of those scribes or the experts in the law come to his house as a private tutor. He could pay for them to learn more, but he comes to this itinerant Galilean preacher who has no place to lay his head and humbles himself before him and asks him the question that he is about to ask him. And he asked him, but before he asked the question, he addresses Jesus as good teacher. It's actually better than what even the disciples did who only acknowledge him as rabbi. Uh, but he's good teacher. He's not trying to flatter Jesus. He acknowledges Jesus as someone who is good. Someone in whom uh, a right relationship with God is to be found. And someone from whom he wants to learn something. And he asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
It's a sincere question. There's no reason from the text to think otherwise. It's, a, it's something that we ought to desire. Uh, eternal life is something we need to desire. And this man wants it. And he, wants, he has come to one who can give him the right answer. And he also senses that lack. He, this is not something he, does not, that he has now. And he wants to know how he can receive these desirable things. And he asks, what is the ultimate? Then others have asked Jesus all kinds of questions. But this man asks the ultimate question. What must I do to have eternal life? The same concept of eternal life is later on described in, chapter, in verse 21 as uh, treasure in heaven. Later on, the same concept is described in verses 23 and 24 as kingdom of God. Entry into the kingdom of God. The same concept is described by very, in verse 26 as salvation. To speak of eternal life is to speak of life in God's kingdom. Is to speak of salvation. Is to speak of having treasures in, in God's heaven. This man obviously has not heard what Jesus just said in the passage we considered last Sunday in chapter 10 verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus has said clearly that one receives eternal life, one receives the kingdom of God, one does not work for it, one cannot earn it. And this man wants to know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? His question is wrong. Even if you just take inheritance in general, uh, we don't receive an inheritance because of what we do. We receive an inheritance because of somebody, so, some, something somebody else did. That they put us on their will so that we can receive an inheritance and that they died. Uh, if something else does that someone else does that we receive an inheritance. You don't do anything to earn an inheritance. But this man asks Jesus, what must I do? And Jesus corrects him immediately. First he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. If I have a dollar for every skeptic who comes and says, oh look at here, Jesus denies that he is God or he is good. No, uh, this is not an isolated verse. You look at who Jesus is, what his claims are concerning himself, how he is presented in the whole council of the, the gospel, but also the, the whole council of scriptures. He is God, as he's going to make very clear uh, in this passage by claims that he makes concerning who enters the kingdom or not. He gets to, dis he gets to stay, assert who enters into the kingdom. That's something only God can say. Yeah, Jesus does that here. And there's no one who can say that Jesus is not good. So why does Jesus say to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It's because this man has assumed that goodness is something that one can work toward and yearn on one's own. But it is God who decides what is good. Remember the knowledge of the tree of good and evil? We were supposed to learn that in dependence on God, not independent of God by trying to claim that uh, by, e by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it is God alone who decides who is good and how one is good. And this man, has, uh, he does not know that uh, or acknowledge Jesus as God. Uh, he has come to Jesus and has, has seen Jesus as someone who has achieved this eternal life. And maybe Jesus could tell him how he could do it too. Uh, no, Jesus tells, points him to God. You know, look at what God has to say about eternal life. And Jesus uh, uh, continues on. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. The man asks, what must I do? And Jesus gives him a whole list of what he mustn't do. What must I do? Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false. This is the second stable of the law. The first table has to do with love for God, and the second table has to do with love for one's neighbor. God alone has the authority to declare what is good, 
and how one enters into that commandments, uh, to that, uh, into that goodness, and it's God's commandments, the obedience to which that one brings, uh, or one demonstrates that one is indeed good, that one is indeed the possessor of eternal life. See, the, the Ten Commandments were given to people who were already God's covenant people. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. And this continues. So by obeying the commandments, he demonstrates that he is one who possesses eternal life. One who possesses, the one who is in a covenant relationship with God. Uh, Jesus presents the second table except for one uh, item where, where thou shall not covet or do not covet. Jesus uh, reframes it as do not, uh, do not defraud. There's nothing here in this text to say that this man has become rich by defrauding others. For all purposes, he seems to be an ethical, moral, honest man. But even there, it is possible that he has benefited from uh, systems of evil where uh, one may have enjoyed privileges because of what that system provides, even though one may be ethically, morally upright. So do not defraud. So Jesus takes this question. The man came asking for a question, asking a question about eternal life, about salvation. And Jesus turns that question into uh, one's concern for one's neighbor. He does the same thing when another uh, man asks him about eternal life. Uh, and Jesus tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan, where again, he takes a question of salvation and turns it into a question of love for neighbor. A right relationship with God is demonstrated through a right relationship with others. So Jesus has answered him, but how will this man respond? Um, and he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Uh, six of the Ten Commandments, you know, David broke uh, three of those. And, but here's this man who says to Jesus, I have kept all these from youth. He also went from good teacher to teacher. Maybe because Jesus hasn't told him something, anything that he already didn't know. Uh, but his claim here is a sincere claim that he has kept all these commandments still from his youth. There's nothing in this text. Jesus, it goes on to say that Jesus loved him. Uh, Jesus believes as much as we believe Paul when he says in Philippians chapter 3, that as far as the requirements of the law, he is blameless. Uh, as far as the external requirements, and that's what every one of these commandments requires an external action. Uh, as far as the external actions of obedience to this law, he has kept them. Uh, but there's more to obedience to law than external action. There's God's intent, as Jesus conveys in the Sermon on the Mount. Thou shall not commit adultery is a law. And one can demonstrate external commitment, obedience to the law. But Jesus uh, says God's intent in that is that one does not even lust. So you, you say, I have never committed adultery and therefore I obey the commandment. But actually, if you have lusted, you have broken the commandment is what Jesus gets at. So we do not know if he has kept these commands according to God's intent. But at least in his external actions, he has kept these commandments. He's a good man. Also notice, uh, he's not self-righteous like that Pharisee who went before God and said he had kept all of these as though God owes him something. He actually, this man comes and acknowledges that even after, having keep, after keeping all these commandments, he's, he lacks something. He came to Jesus, uh, says, what must I do to eternal life? He inherit eternal life. He's been faithful to the covenant, yet he realizes that keeping the commands is not enough to be in right relationship with God. He senses his inadequacy, he senses his lack, 
if you were an attendee in our church, uh, he would be a good candidate for our nominating committee to consider for some role in our leadership. It's a good man. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. This is crucial. Uh, Jesus will look in this passage three times, first at this man, twice at the disciples. Um, And we need to remember that Jesus' response that he's going to give to this man is one that comes out of love. This is not, he's not like the Pharisees. He's not like Jesus does not have a a gotcha uh, with his response. This is something, um, Jesus takes this man at his word and loves him enough to confront him, not just to confront him, but present him with that which would indeed bring him into a right relationship with God. So what does Jesus tell him? Um, He says to him, you lack one thing. His keeping of the commandments was not sufficient for him to meet God's intent uh, in the law, the second table, to love one's neighbor. He lacked love for neighbor, but he lacked more than that, as we're going to see. So Jesus gives him more to do. And here's where we have this implied authority of Jesus, the, uh, the authority of God himself. It is only God who says how one comes into a right, right relationship with him. And God has given his commandments, and, man, and this man says he has kept his commandments. And Jesus says to him, you lack one thing. And only God gets to do that. And what is it that he lacks? He says, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Uh, This man, there's no reason to doubt that all his wealth has been earned honestly, but even honestly earned wealth seems to be a hurdle to one's entry into the kingdom if that wealth is an idol. Jesus asks him to divest his wealth, not just renunciation of wealth for, for renunciation's sake, not for some worldly asceticism, but to meet one's neighbor. Not just go sell your possessions, but go sell your possessions and give it to the poor. That's love for neighbor. There are other rich, uh, young, uh, rich, not necessarily young, uh, the the rich farmer, for example, uh, who had a great harvest and he sees that he has not enough storehouses and he builds more storehouses and he tells himself that his his future is taken care of and uh, God comes to him and tells him, what if your life is taken from you? Uh, What will your riches do for you? Augustine, commenting on that rich farmer, he says, he did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. But notice, go sell your possessions and give it to the poor, but it's still not enough. All that is toward the most essential need, the one thing that will bring him into a right relationship with God, an action that is more extreme than obedience to all the commands that uh, uh, he said that he follows. And again, we see Jesus' deity to declare that one thing that that man needs in order for him to be in right relationship with God, that is to follow him. Come, follow me. One can only receive the kingdom of God in right relationship with Jesus. Jesus moves from the general to the particular. Generally, he has to go and sell and give, but the particular that is needed for him to come into a right relationship with God is to follow Jesus. Eternal life is not what we do, but complete allegiance to Jesus. Come and follow me. We saw earlier that Jesus is on the way. On the way to what? Jesus is on the way to the cross. To those who follow Jesus will follow him to the, to the cross. 
Jesus reframes this question concerning eternal life, the kingdom of God, into a new way of life. To be rightly related to God requires right allegiance to Jesus. To enter into the kingdom, to enter to receive salvation, one has to be to to forsake all things for the sake of allegiance to Jesus. Uh, Jesus speaks of it in, in many many different parables. Uh, a man finds a pearl of great value buried in a field, and he sells everything he possesses to buy that field because that pearl is of greater value than anything he possesses. And we are told, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. You're told the man is dismayed. Uh, he's overcome by grief. All that indicates his sincerity. He wasn't just asking a throwaway question for Jesus. He wants this eternal life, right relationship with God, entry into God's kingdom, salvation. And Jesus loves this man. He doesn't see him as evil. But this man valued his wealth more than his desire for his right relationship with God. And that's what keeps him out. And Jesus knows that. He appears sincere, he appears faithful to the covenant, and Jesus confronts him on that one thing that he lacks. Uh, and he's captive to his wealth. He's captive to his possessions. When I was growing up in India, tales were told about how you catch a monkey. How you catch a monkey is you, you take an earthen vessel with a narrow opening and you put peanuts in the vessel. So the monkey sticks his hand in there to get the peanuts, and when he clenches the peanuts, he can't take his hand out. So wherever he runs, he has to run with that vessel, and it's heavy, and they catch him. If he would only let go of the peanuts, he can be free. But monkey does not want to let go of the peanuts, and he runs with the pot, and he gets caught. And that's what has happened to this man, and that's what happens to any of us who say anything but this. This man's wealth holds him back from the freedom of the kingdom of God. And Jesus gives him... The only way for him to be freed from the clutches of wealth was to give it away. That which was holding him captive and was of greater value to him than right relationship with God. Jesus' words are not to condemn the man, but to free him from the depths of his captivity. The disciples look good in this passage because they seem to get what Jesus says. So far they've been missing the point. And Jesus looked around, second time he looks around, he says to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, well, who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus will repeat this again uh, figuratively and, and, uh, and, and generalizes it even in the next statement. It's not just difficult as we, see, uh, as we will see. It's, it's impossible, he says, for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, as the, uh, the passage that we heard read, 1 Timothy, it's, it's the love of money. But here it's not about love of money. It's not about trusting in one's wealth even. It's about those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples are amazed at his word. Why, Why amazed? 
Because the scriptures teach in Deuteronomy chapter 28, 1 to 14, or Proverbs chapter 10, or Psalm 128, that it is God who blesses with wealth. Possessing wealth was a sign of God's blessing, of once being in right relationship with God. Proverbs, for example, says the blessing of the Lord makes rich. And he adds no sorrow with it. Uh, it was generally believed, not just in Israel, but in the ancient Near East, that wealth was a sign of being blessed by God, being in right relationship with God. The scriptures do warn about exploiting people uh, uh, in order to become rich, and those who are rich uh, don't see their dependence on God. Scripture warns them concerning those things. Uh, but one was rich because of God's blessings, and, and the disciples are just astonished that Jesus would say exactly the opposite, that those who have wealth, uh, whom they assume would, be, would easily enter into the kingdom, are... Uh, be difficult for them. And Jesus says to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Sometimes we need to notice not only what is said, but what is left out. Notice this time, uh, Jesus doesn't say how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus says how difficult it is to enter into the kingdom of God. It's not just for wealthy, it's for anybody. So any of us who are sitting here and we think, oh, it's just for the wealthy, I'm not the number. Uh, it, all, it's true for all of us. It is impossible by anything we do, anything we are, to enter into a right relationship with God because of who we are or what we do. Um, it, there's something else that is necessary. And also notice that Jesus addresses the disciples as children. Uh, first and only time, maybe he's pointing back to what he said earlier, that only those who receive the kingdom as a child would enter it. And these disciples ha have indeed uh, received the kingdom because they have come to Jesus in, 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 in full dependence, as Peter will acknowledge in, in just a, me in a minute, and, and Jesus will affirm. So the statement of impossibility entering into a right relationship with God not just for the wealthy, but for everyone. It's generalized here. And Jesus again goes back to particular. It's entering the right into a right relationship with God. It's not a human possibility. It's not a human achievement. It's easier, he says, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The camel was the biggest animal that they knew in the Middle East, and the eye of a needle was the smallest opening they knew of. Uh, imagine a camel sitting before an eye of a needle and wondering how he could go through that thing. Uh, I think it's John Stott or somebody said, imagine the camel, even if he made it, how stretched out he would be from nose to tail. After. <laughs> but that's not the point. The point is that some people try to soften this, you know, either by uh, making the camel smaller or the eye of the needle bigger. Uh, but it doesn't work. For some, some have said that uh, may, there was an entrance uh, to Jerusalem called the, the, the camel entrance, but there's no record of any such thing other than a man who claimed that in the 11th century. Uh, so uh, uh, others have said the word for camel uh, is actually an Aramaic word that means rope. But I would like to see you thread a needle with the rope. Uh, <laughs> so it does not take away the absurdity or, or the, the impossibility. Um, so it's impossible for anyone. And here particularly in this case, uh, the wealthy, he says. Um, and the disciples are not just astonished, they're exceedingly astonished. They get it. And they get it, and it's reflected in their statement. They said to him, who can be saved? Uh, when Jesus, uh, what Jesus has said does, means that it's not just the wealthy who are, for whom it is impossible to enter into the kingdom of God for anyone. Because they say, who then can be saved? It's not a state, it's, it's, a, it's a rhetorical question because it doesn't require an answer. What they're saying is no one can be saved then. If the rich can't enter in, 
and they seem to be blessed by God, uh, who can? No one can. And they're right. So Jesus looks at them again, and he tells them, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. If we are counting on things of our own, whether they be wealth, or much possessions, or virtue, keeping all the commandments, being moralistic, uh, all of this is being self-reliant, and, sal and salvation is impossible if you're relying on ourselves, no matter how good they may be. Salvation is not a self-accomplishment. It can only be received from God like a child in complete dependence on Him. When one turns from self to Jesus, and turning to Jesus always requires turning to others. You can't turn to Jesus without also looking at others, and hence the command to give it away to the poor. When one turns from oneself and turns to Jesus, one finds that one, what is humanly impossible is possible with God. Because God does the impossible. Salvation, entrance into the kingdom of God, treasure in heaven, eternal life. These are all uh, not human accomplishments, not human possibilities, but received from God as a gift of grace. And this divine possibility is already seen in the disciples. Uh, these are not extraordinary people who left their boats and their families and followed after Jesus because they are different, but because the, the possibility of God is already at work in their lives. And you see that in the early church as well, after Pentecost, uh, they were together and they would readily sell their possessions to meet the needs of others. That's the possibility of God in, in the lives of people who would otherwise hold on to that which is theirs. Mine is mine and sometimes maybe yours can be mine too, no? <laughs> uh, no. The bad news of this passage is salvation is a human impossibility. We can't earn salvation. We can't work our way. There's nothing we can say, what must I do? But the good news is there is salvation for anyone, even for those who are wealthy, if they would only turn to God and receive it from Him, completely dependent on Him and what He has done. We don't see it in this passage, but we know from the Gospel of Mark and the rest of Scripture that what God has done by which we can freely receive from Him is not to trust in ourselves, but to trust in Jesus Christ and what He has done. Receiving His righteousness as sufficient for His goodness as sufficient for entry into God's kingdom and remaining in God's kingdom and enjoying the treasures of God's kingdom. Peter is very clued in in this passage. So Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. What? And in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last on the last first. Peter began to say to him, I mean, he's saying it several times. See, I've left everything and followed you. It's a true statement. It's a legitimate question. Jesus doesn't dis disagree with him. Jesus acknowledges that disciples have indeed left everything. He says, that's why he says, truly I say to you. That's a, uh, that's a divine assertion from Jesus. This is something you can take to the bank. Amen. Truly, I say to you, from the mouth of Jesus himself. And what is it that? There's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children. Any of these things. Not all of these things necessarily. Any of these things. Uh, he says, uh, to, who has left them not just for any reason, but for the sake of 
the name of Jesus and for his gospel. This is not just renunciation for renunciation's sake or for some life of uh, asceticism, but for Jesus' sake, for the gospel's sake. This is the same thing he said in Mark 8, 35. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, he will save it. What happens to these people? Jesus says, these will receive not Will, will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the end to come eternal life. Earlier on in chapter 3, when his uh, family came to get him, Jesus said, uh, who are my mothers? Uh, my, who's my family? It's those who do the will of God. Here he uh, differentiates between this age and the age to come. He also differentiates between salvation as merely individualistic to belonging to a community and also salvation from being merely futuristic to something that we already begin to experience now. So salvation, uh, eternal life now is life in God's community. Whatever you give up for the sake of Christ and his gospel, whether it's house, uh, you are welcome in the houses of the people of God into whom God has brought you. If you give up your mothers or father or sisters or uh, children uh, or, or so on, uh, you receive that back except for one person who is not mentioned as those whom you will receive back. The father is not mentioned as one whom you will receive. Why? Because those who are coming to the people of God, those who are coming to the community of God's people, we have one father, our God. And he is enough. He is father to us all. And not only that, he says in the present time we will receive persecutions as well along with this. Uh, being set apart as we saw, being, being salt, um, not only means that uh, uh, we are in this world, uh, we are not called to withdraw from this world, but we are called not to get comfortable in this world either. Being salty, being the influence of God's kingdom in this world will bring about persecution. Anyone who desires to live a righteous life, will be persecuted. You don't have to go looking for it. You just have to follow the kingdom way of life and it will come to you. It's a gift, according to Jesus. It tells us that we belong to his way. And then there's more to come. In the age to come, you receive eternal life. God has done the impossible. See, that's what the young man came to Jesus for. Uh, the rich man here, not the young man. The young man is in Matthew. Uh, how do I inherit eternal life? And finally, we see how one doesn't inherit but receives eternal life by turning to Jesus and receiving it from God through Christ. Disciples receive. Disciples do not work. Disciples turn to Jesus. Disciples are people in whom God is at work accomplishing the impossible in them. And Jesus concludes this with saying, but many who are first will be last and the last first. He has said this before. He will say it again. This is the great reversal the kingdom of God be, brings about. In the world in which they lived and in our world now, uh, the first are, the man, are people like that rich man who, uh, who are recognized because of their many possessions as those who are standing, those who are first. And people like the disciples who have left everything to follow this itinerant Galilean preacher who are considered the last. But Jesus says in the kingdom to come it will be reversed. Those who have considered of worth in this world will find themselves to be last. Uh, but those who considered all that as nothing because of the relationship with God, they find themselves to be first. And we see that already in the death and resurrection of Jesus. He becomes the last of all. He becomes the servant of all. And in the resurrection, he's exalted as Lord of all. So we 
Just like that man are called to choose this day whether we will follow Jesus or cling to whatever it is that will make us first, maybe not in this world, but at least in our world. You know, this is, uh, this is one of the most difficult sayings of Jesus. Right? See, people don't want to hear sermons about what to do with their possessions, right? And preachers don't want to preach it because people may ask them to lead by example. <laughs> so, in the words of that famous series, Never Have I Ever, I must say, never have I ever uh, experienced the uh, dear people of Calvary telling me that don't tell us that from God's word. You have given me the freedom to speak freely from God's word because you call me not to tickle your ears, but to proclaim God's word so that we may all together be formed as God's disciples. So we are to call, hear these difficult words of Jesus because eternal life depends on it. Right relationship with God matters. And that's far greater than anything that we want to hear or we have or we don't have. Some have, because of the hardness of the saying, have taken it to either one or two different extremes. Some have completely ignored it and went to the opposite direction where they made it, the, that's where we have the prosperity gospel. So the, 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 if you have just sufficient faith in faith, you will have riches here now. But then others have taken it to the other extreme and it turned it into a new law that requires all wealthy people and that includes all of us to sell everything. So it's Jesus plus disowning everything and giving it to the power. Poor, that's not what this passage is about either. This is contrary even to God's word to make this into a new law because the child doesn't come to Jesus to receive the kingdom by dispossessing all that it owns. The child comes freely to receive, dependent on who God is and, uh, and whoever is giving the gift. But at the same time, we should be careful not to, to dismiss this extreme command uh, that Jesus gives to this young man. In, it's, this is no different from what Jesus has said before, after his first prediction concerning his, uh, his death and his resurrection. And when Peter uh, opposes him and Jesus instructs them on discipleship, he says in, in chapter 8, verse 34 and following, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. No one asks, how could Jesus say that? We say, yeah, good. Jesus said that, right? He goes on to say, for whoever would uh, save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And we say, yes, Jesus. Uh, I will just trust and obey. Then chapter 9, same thing. After the second prediction, he sat them down, called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. I said, of course, Jesus, you have the right to say that. But then in chapter 10, when Jesus says, Go sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and follow me. We are like, how could you say that, Jesus? We are people who will deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow Jesus. We are people who will be last for the sake of Jesus and servant of all for the sake of Jesus. But if Jesus calls us to forsake all our possessions and follow him, then we may say, Jesus couldn't have really said that. Maybe there was a camel gate. You know, I heard a story about... Um, 
this preacher was called to a logging uh, area where there are several logging communities along a river. And those who were upstream, when they cut their logs and floated down the river at the sawed-off end, they would put in their initials and float it down to the barge where they will sort out which log belongs to whom by the initials. But people who were downstream will catch those logs, saw off the end, put their initials, and float it down. So Peter, the pastor, the preacher observed all of that. So next Sunday, he preached the, from the commandments that thou shall not steal. Everybody shook his hand and said, yes, pastor, that's what everybody needs to hear. Even some of those guys he saw sawing off the end. So he's like, why is it nobody's getting it? And, and then the next Sunday he preached the same message, but instead of saying, thou shall not steal, he said, thou shall not saw off the end of your neighbor's law. <laughs> and that was his last Sunday there. <laughs> See, uh, this passage is not primarily about wealth. Uh, it's about discipleship. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about God's pervasive claim of over all our lives, including how we view wealth or possessions. God doesn't want our possessions. Everything belongs to him. He doesn't want a portion of our life, this spiritual life as we call it. Uh, all of us belongs to God. All of us needs to be redeemed. And God claims all of us so that we may be indeed free as those who belong to him. And responding to God's claim is not something that's painless or without sacrifice because it requires being last in this world. But everything in us wants to be first. But we need to remember in the upside down kingdom of God, who gets to be last, who gets to be first. What do we receive from God in exchange for these measly things that we lay at his feet? We receive God himself. So these three questions, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a wrong question. That's asking how much does God want? How much does Jesus want? How much is enough? You see, what Jesus wants from us can't be quantified. Jesus wants all of us. Jesus gave himself for us, and he makes a claim on our whole person. Uh, he's not just looking for some moral person who's keeping the commandments, some nice guy uh, who's not self-righteous. He wants those who would come to him saying that apart from him, they have nothing, and cling to him. There's much in this world that uh, we try to work for, even when it comes to relationship with God. If you're here this morning, and if you think uh, attending church service on a rainy day, or singing in the choir, or, uh, or preacher preaching the sermon, if that is somehow uh, earns something you do to inherit eternal life, right standing with God, doesn't work that way. See, um, this passage presents both human responsibility and God's grace. Human responsibility is to respond to God's command, but one can do that only by God's grace. There's a great uh, argument between two uh, leaders in the church in the 5th century, Augustine and Pelagius. Augustine acknowledged that God has the right to command whatever he will of us. But he also acknowledged that if God would command anything of us, he needed to grant what he commanded. So his famous saying is, grant what thou commandest, and then command what you will. But Pelagius didn't think of us as uh, human beings as having uh, become morally corrupt because of the fall of Adam. He, think, he thought of every person as morally capable. Uh, so he says, no one knows the extent of our strength better than he who gave us this strength. He has not willed to command anything impossible, for he is righteous, and he will not condemn a man for what he could not help, for he is holy. Other words saying that if God has said that, you can do it. He has not acknowledged our 
not just our inability as sinners, but our inability as creatures to be who God calls us to be, and therefore fully and completely depend on God's grace. And that is humanly impossible, but with God, all things are possible. When we turn to God's grace, we receive that which we can't achieve. So the question is, who then can be saved, or what can save us? Uh, uh, we, we, that question that we asked earlier, what is that one thing that without which my life will, uh, uh, if that is taken away, my life will become meaningless? That one thing is the Jesus plus. Could be wealth, as in the case of this man, but uh, idols, you know, Calvin said our hearts are factories of idols. And the biggest idol is self. No, we don't bow down before uh, wooden or metal or objects and, and worship them. Tim Keller, uh, I, one of his, my favorite books of his is called, uh, it's actually a study called Gospel for Life. He says this about idolatry. What's an idol? Something besides Jesus Christ that we feel we must have to be happy. Something that's more important to our heart than God. Something that is enslaving our heart through inordinate desires. If I ask that, you would say, is there something besides Jesus that you must have to feel happy? All of you would say, come on, be honest. <laughs> you say no, right? If I ask you, is there something more important to, to, to your heart than God? We would all say, no. If uh, we say something that's enslaving our heart through inordinate desires, you say, no, we're freeing Jesus, but... Keller helpfully gives us several diagnostic questions to help ourselves to see whether we have idols in our lives. He, he asks these questions, what is my greatest nightmare? What do I worry about the most? Uh, that could be an idol. What do I rely on or comfort myself with when things go badly or, or become difficult? What makes me feel the most self-worth, what I'm proudest of? What do I really want and expect out of life? What would really make me happy? Uh, and then if we don't honestly answer those questions, he gives us uh, several examples of what some of these things could be. You say life has only has meaning, only has worth if I have power and influence over others. Then power is our idol. Life only has meaning, I have only worth if I am loved and respected by so and so. Then approval is our idol, he says. Life only has meaning, I have only worth only if I have this kind of pleasure experience, a particular quality of life, then comfort is my idol. Life only has meaning, I only have worth if I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of whatever, then control is my idol. Life only has meaning, I have only worth if I'm completely free from obligations or responsibilities to care for someone, then independence is my idol. Life only has meaning, I only have worth if I'm being recognized for my accomplishments and I'm excelling in my work, then achievement is my idol. Long list. We, there's no end to this world of idols. I love the uh, saying of Jonah. Jonah, in Jonah 2.8, part of his song, uh, I love the Net Bible version. Those who worship worthless idols forfeit the mercy that could be theirs. If we cling to idols, we forsake the grace that comes from God, whatever that idol may be. In the case of this young man, it was his wealth. But what is ours? Only we can uh, answer that. But following Jesus, clinging to Jesus alone is the road to freedom from these idols, to receive that grace that God gives. 
to enjoy the freedom of the kingdom of God. It's a testimony of the reality of the kingdom that's already ours because Jesus has brought about that kingdom uh, through his death and his resurrection and bring it about in its fullness. And I trust that all of you here have trusted in Jesus and have received that only he, what only he can give, what only God gives through Christ Jesus. I trust that none of us are clinging to idols because of which we forfeit the grace that could be ours. Why would we want to do that? I know many of you have turned to Jesus. You have received. And for you, you would readily give up whatever it is because you value Jesus more than anything else. And, and for us, it's not wrong to ask, like Peter did, what about us? What about us? And God's answer matters. The rewards of eternal life are both... Now in the future, we all think of the future, streets of gold and crowns or wreaths around our heads. Some of our heads will fit them better than those of you who have hair. So, but streets of gold and wreaths are not a reward. God is our reward. Uh, what is it that we can have that is greater than God himself? And in asking all of ourselves, God gives himself to us. God is our gift. God is our inheritance. God is our life. And that's what he calls us to say, let go of that. Come to me, I'll give you something that you can never earn, something you're not worthy of, something that I'll give. And you freely receive that by coming to him and receiving that. But while we wait for that, there are rewards now. And rewards, according to Jesus, is the community of God's people. Have you ever seen the church as a gift from God? As the beginning of that eternal life that he has already given us? Uh, some of you are old enough to remember that series, uh, Cheers. Those of you who watch TV, that is, of course. But, uh, <laughs> uh, that theme song is very well known. You know, making your way in the world today takes everything you got. Taking a break from all your worries surely would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where? Yeah, you have seen that show. And, <laughs> and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see. But here's where Cheers is different from the church. Our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. Yes, we are people who are here, not only because our troubles are all the same, but because we have been brought to God's answer for our troubles. And we have each other as brothers and sisters and uh, people who share all that we have with each other because we know that because God is ours, all of these things are not things we need to hold on to. And we can freely let go. So this morning, only you can answer what is that one thing if it was taken out of your life, will reduce your life to meaninglessness. Uh, one thing we will not let go. I can't answer that for you. I'd have to check my own life. It could be my comfort, my wealth, my safety. But to be a disciple of Jesus, to be saved, to have eternal life, to those who have come into the kingdom of God, is to look to God alone and to receive from him what none of us can achieve, but God freely gives. This morning, if you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, I invite you to put your faith in him. You will not be disappointed. It's not just a forgiveness of sins, but it's eternal life, life with God, new life, freedom from all that this world entraps us with. That can be yours if you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. That's God's word. Would you trust in him? And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and if we are still holding on to idols, uh, it's time to show that we are not captive to such idols because there's nothing in this world that's greater than what 
or who God is. Let's ask God for help. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this morning, for this time to look into your word. Thank you, Father, that uh, there is none that is greater than you. There's nothing in this world that is more important for anything that we seek than you and who you are to us. We know that, God. We've experienced that. And most of our lives are fully aligned with that. But there are times when we are tempted by idols of this world. Often things that are good, things that are gifts from you. And we turn them into that one thing without which our life would be meaningless. Help us, Father, to cling to Christ alone, to your grace alone, because in Christ we have received you as our eternal life, our gift, our God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit CBC nyc.org slash give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.